Hello, Fried fans, and welcome to Season 4 of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Donovan, and my mission with Fried is to hashtag end burnout culture. On this pod, we end burnout culture by sharing stories of people who have been through it all, sharing expert tips from the best in the burnout field, sharing hashtag straight from Kate episodes with my own expertise and some fun research now that I'm a student again, plus sharing actionable steps to help you end burnout starting today. If you're feeling burnt out right now and you need personalized guidance, you can book a free breakthrough burnout call with me. You'll find the link bit.ly backslash call Kate in the show notes. Also, if you love fried and want to be part of our community, we'd love to have you. Just head over to Facebook and type in fried the burnout podcast discussion and click to join our group. It's a place for continued healing, deeper conversations and connections with people who just get it. And now, for this week's episode. Hi, Fried fans. I am so excited today to bring you Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, who is a behavioral scientist and burnout survivor. She hosts a podcast on overcoming working mom burnout, where she interviews researchers, DEI experts, and life coaches to understand the multi-level solutions to working mom burnout. Dr. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. It's so fun. We're, we did a podcast exchange. So you can find my episode on overwork, overcoming working mom burnout um, that was released. That will be in December. In it's December. In, in December. December. Yeah. Because okay. you give us some holiday tips yes, as well, that's which right. is that's so right. appreciated. So that will have come out about a month ago by the time this comes out. So you can always uh, go back to that one because I think that was a, such a great conversation and definitely helpful to, to a lot of people. So it now we get to fantastic. do, we had such a great time and now we get to do the other side. As per usual on Friday, we start with your burnout story. So I will exit stage left and please take up all the space and time and energy that you need to give the full feel Thank of your you. story. Thank you. And I think that was one of the reasons we decided that this would be a good new year episode because like you said, I approach this from a multi-level model. And sometimes that can feel overwhelming for people to think about a lot of things, especially if the holidays are coming. So um, I understand that. And hopefully I can present it in a way that feels like, oh, that is what the world looks like. And this is our experience. So it's just how do we fit it all together? So I'll get to that. But thanks for this opportunity. And yeah, my burnout story. Well, I didn't really see it as burnout at the time. I remember wondering if I was having a midlife crisis. Um, so I was working in academia. I was a professor in a school of medicine. And in that role, I was supporting a group of about 40 staff and students. I was bringing in my own salary through research, but also doing teaching, administrative roles, um, mentoring, and a lot of community support roles because that was so important to me. And actually service is part of one of the university tenants. And so you do service not only for the community, but also for your department, for the university as a whole. So that model is quite difficult because you're really sustaining yourself through your funding. So almost every time you get new funding, you're thinking about, OK, when is the next one going to be coming in? So I think that cycle is quite challenging. So um, I realized I was um, burning out 
when I literally would be um, going to work and crying on the way to work and coming home and crying on the way home because both places were making me feel so inadequate. And I had spoken to a colleague who described crying on the way to work. And I remember at that point in time, she was describing her transition from a university position to an entrepreneur position. And I remember thinking, well, that's not me, but it was such a great guide because when it was me, I was like, okay, now I know maybe I'm in that place um, that she was. But as I say, some people find that going home can provide a relief from the workplace or vice versa. If you're struggling at home with parental burnout, going to the work can provide that relief. And I was feeling such a pressure in both places, just feeling so inadequate in both places. I felt like a, a bad mom, a bad wife, a bad friend, um, a bad colleague, a bad leader about daughter just just everything um and so actually i got to a point where um i was having suicide ideation i wrote a suicide letter to my kids actually and i wrote it on my phone and i've kept it mm. partly to see the date and to see okay life goes on um but also because the letter basically was just saying that ask for help, you know, don't be hard on yourself, ask for help. And so when I read it again, I was like, oh, goodness, that's what I have to do for myself. Um, so that's when I shared with my husband that that's how I was feeling. And so then I um, took a leave of absence from work started seeing a th therapist. And, you know, before even uh, after that process, um, after that experience of of sharing that with my husband and still feeling it for you know several weeks afterwards um i did then start to have some panic attacks as well um and so i i just knew that things weren't going well and i wasn't coping um and so that was helpful to see a therapist and her to basically really try and stop this fight or flight um state that i was in and then I had friends advise me, old colleagues advise me, take a leave of absence, right? We have that opportunity at the university, take a medical leave. Um, and so that really helped me to um, readjust my stress system. Um, I do a lot of exercise, so I feel like I cope with stress really well. Um, and so I think it was this, my body was eventually screaming at me and telling me, please stop, please stop. Um, I wasn't paying so much attention to my mental health. I would often spend more time on my physical health. And so during that leave of absence, I hiked a lot and I started listening to a lot of books and trying to work out um, what else I could do to, to you know, um, gain control of my life and, and um, feel better about myself. And I definitely got into a, a better state of of calmness I think but then when I did go back to work I remember that very first day back at work I was presenting at a conference and I had three students come up to me and say could I mentor them and I was just like paralyzed because I was like I have to say no I don't know how to say no and nothing's changed this is still going to be where I'm asked to do things and I want to do them of course I want to mentor students it meant so much to me and I felt like I could give them so much, but I just was struggling to find out how I could go on in that way. And then we had this international meeting 
where we were reviewing our field for the past 20 years. And I remember sitting in that meeting just going, oh, my God, we've achieved nothing. We've done nothing. This is such a waste of time. What am I doing here? And so that cynicism really started to creep in. And I don't think it was really till after I left that then, as you describe it to um, you know, my inner critic really emerged even stronger after I left the university. I decided that, yes, I, I just couldn't carry on in this place and that it wasn't a good fit for me. Um, and yeah, then losing my identity and my inner critic just emerged so strongly. So that's something I've really been struggling with. And I feel like I, I still struggle with overwhelm and overwork. Um, when COVID hit, I started having a parent coach because I was so afraid of having my kids at home and just being a terrible mom. And my coach then said to me, it's what you tell yourself that's the problem. It, it's not that you're going to be a bad mom, but you tell yourself you're going to be a bad mom. Um, so I still struggle with these issues of um, getting overwhelmed because I'm trying to be the best at everything I do. And um, so that personality type, I have to really recognize, goes with me where, wherever I go. Um, but trying to find ways of feeling in my body when I'm, when I'm panicking, when my chest is tight, um, telling myself I need a break before I really get to that point of needing a break. Those are all things now that um, I try to do because I, I still think I'm in this process. I'm still trying to find a way to exist as a mom and an entrepreneur and um, to have my passion for preventing burnout in other moms. Um, yeah, it's still still challenging. When when did you leave your job? Um, in 2018. So, okay. yeah, it's been um, three or four years now. Right. So we're talking about three or four years. And I wanted to ask that particularly because so often I get the question, you know, how long will this last? And the research basically shows some sort of window of about 12 to 18 months. It was two years for me personally. And even though those two years were now a little over three years ago, I did just recently over this past fall have about eight weeks where I was like, oh, shit, I'm doing it again. Oh, mm -hmm. right. And I had to, I, and I noticed it. I think the difference this time around was that I wasn't rude to myself about it. <laughs> right? I saw it happening and I was like, oh, I see that happening. That's so interesting. This is a place where you haven't worked through burnout in because this wasn't a part of your life. I went back to school, right? So now I'm doing on top of my podcast and my full-time business. I'm also a full-time university student again, and I'm almost 40. Like, so things are a little different and I hadn't dealt with the burnout tendencies that I have related to being a student. I, right now, currently, I have a 92 in one of my classes, and I'm pissed about it because it's the only class I have an A minus in. I'm taking five university level courses in one semester and running a business, and I'm mad that I have a 92. Right. So right. I noticed this happening, and I had to stop and say, wow, that's really interesting. You haven't had to apply these lessons in this way yet. Let's see what we can do here. 
So I didn't go all the way back down into a burnout, but I did have a moment where I was like, just le-, you know, when um, the roadrunner is sort of like, just like leaning over the edge of the cliff, like just before a fall, mm-hmm. you know, that, that cartoon. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's what I was, that's, that's the place that I was in. I was like, oh, I'm just going to tip over this cliff. And then I was like, wait a second, there's a rope back there that mm-hmm. I can grab. But mm-hmm. it did, it, it has taken me, you know, another three years after recovery to get to the place where I'm not an asshole to myself. Right, right. And and it is so much about what we tell ourselves. And again, you know, my husband even just said it last night to me, you can't get burned out doing a podcast about burnout. <laughs> But it's like, of course you can. Of course you can. Of course you can. It, it you know, it, it, and I, I remember um, uh, another coach I, I, I worked with, we were talking about branding and, and self-branding. And she said, your self-belief is going to be your Grand Canyon. Mm-hmm. And so when you, th- you talked about the roadrunner, it made me think of that too. Yeah. I'm going to fall in it. Yeah. And the question is, how long does it take me to recognize I'm there? And how long does it take me to pull myself out of there? And I think that fear of burning out again, Mm. um, of course, it's driving me because I don't want other mums to feel this thing. Right. I'm so afraid that anyone feels pain or suffering or um, but actually, you know, the reality is, yeah, we are going to experience this. And it's about how we grow. I really loved a, a concept I, I read about recently in, in um, Jen Moss's book on, on burnout that was about the, the, the recovery from trauma. And I think it's so relevant to our experience here at COVID is that you really can have these opportunities to recover in a different way, to, to, to start again in a different way, to move in a different way after you have hit you know, some really tough places. So I I do feel that Um, even though I still feel like I'm struggling, I I know I'm approaching things in a different way than I ever did before. And it's taking time and it's a lot of rewiring, I think. Um, But at least I sort of know more about um, the things I can do to help myself and and being aware. As you say, that awareness is is such the, the, the first important step. So again, I really do think if there are triggers that you know yourself, like again, mine now I realize it's when I get into the car to go pick up the kids, if I feel really tight in my chest, that's a really helpful one for me. I start to go, okay, why am I feeling that? What's going on? Something is, I'm feeling too much tension here. Yeah. What so, needs to be, what could be adjusted in order to move through this? Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So you're a behavioral scientist, which I'm slightly obsessed with because right now the, <laughs> the, the degree that I'm currently getting is biobehavioral health. And I'm so envious. That just sounds so amazing. It's probably all stuff you already know. So, but still it's, I really do love this, but can you explain to people that might not know what behavioral science means, wh- what that is? Because it's really relevant, I believe, to both burning out, recovery from burnout, and how you view change. Right, right. So there's two pieces to this, because I'm a a behavioral scientist in a public health 
arena. So I think you could have behavior science where you um, are really trying to change individuals. And I think really what we know about um, behavior science is how do people change? That's what behavior science um, tells you. It's how do people actually make a change? So one, you have to know what sort of change is it you're trying to make? You have to have a really clear goal. And um, people talk about smart goals, goals that are measurable, that are really relevant to you, that have a time attached to them. So even that whole process of goal setting in itself is so important. Having some, some behavior scientists say it's very tiny goals. They're, they're micro steps. They're just little nudges. Um, other things you can do is tie those goals. You can anchor those goals to other behaviors. So for example, every time you have a cup of coffee, it prompts you to do this other healthy behavior. So there, there are techniques like this that really help us because behavior change is is actually quite difficult. I mean, we, so many of us have failed to do so many things. Um, and it's not that it's so difficult, it's just that you need to acknowledge that you need a plan and you need a lot of support. So again, another um, idea from behavior science is called implementation intentions. So unless you actually sit down and say, what am I gonna do? When am I gonna do it? where am I going to do it, then you don't really have a plan. So just wanting to do more, um, say, walking, for example, isn't, isn't going to get you there. You literally have to sit down and say, okay, what time of day I'm doing it? What day of the week? And also then who am I doing it with? The who am I doing it with is so helpful because we do need support, but we also need accountability partners. So that person might do the thing with you or at least tell you that, um, remind you to do it, support you to do it, reward you when you're doing so. I, I saw you out walking again today. Great job. Um, so there's, there's so much that we can get from, from um, accountability partners. Um, and then again, the, the tracking. So when you're trying to reach a goal, you need to one, set yourself a reasonable goal to get there. A lot of people, um, for example, with physical activity start too hard and then they get injured and get hurt and things, you, you get all these things in your way. So setting really small goals to start with is so important, but how do you know you've reached your goal? Cause partly reaching your goal is, is the success that allows you to keep going. So how do you reach your goal? You need to track it. You need to know. But one of the things we discovered in, in our research, for example, is a Fitbit can help you track your steps. But you actually do need some of the cognitive process of making the goal and reaching it and potentially writing it down. Because if the Fitbit just does it all for you automatically, there's not enough um, attention then being paid um, to the goal. So you, it does really help if you're actually also writing stuff down and acknowledging it. Um, and again, realizing that a lot of these things come from skills. So um, the, 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 there are skills needed to, to change behaviors. So I think that's when we think about the work environment, when people talk about training. Well, training is just knowledge unless it actually gives you skills that you then 
practice and that you have somebody else that can role model these skills to you um, and that you can follow and say, not only can I see that person doing the skill so I know what to do, but also, hey, that person's like me. If they can do it, I can do it. And that's a huge part of behavior change is having that self-belief in your ability to have mastery over something. And again, mastery takes time. So it's again, what little successes can you have along the way? What behaviors can you start with? So you can go, hey, I'm good at this. I'm getting this. And then the goals become bigger along the way. Um, and then I think there's a huge part of problem solving, right? There are so many barriers that you can face when you when you think about a new habit. So think about them ahead of time and brainstorm with someone else or come up with the solutions yourself and be really aware that you do have to ask for help. You know, so a lot of these situations, particularly, say, um, around burnout, you're going to have to ask other people to help you to provide you with the social support so that you can help change your behavior. So there's, there's sounds a lot, but I have some um, example frameworks. So for, for each episode of my podcast, I ask um, my guests to, to give me a behavior that they think um, a mom or a company should work on. And then I create a little behavior plan around that. And I know it sounds like, wow, this is, this is, you know, it's not rocket science, right? Why does it have to be this detail? Why do you have to think about these things? Surely I can just change. But that's where I've always had this real thing against Nike, the just do it. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So taking a little bit of time to have a plan. So I have a little framework that people can use to, um, work it out for themselves, but I always provide the examples because it really helps to have an example and go, oh, what, what does it mean um, to think about um, barriers? What are some of the barriers that I could, um, that might come up and that I could overcome? But I think there are some things in behavior science that I've really come to understand outside of behavior science. So for example, Compassion isn't something that we mention in behavior science. Um, you know, compassion for when you don't get it right. Compassion for yourself on the days when you don't feel like doing that thing that you're trying to do. Um, uh, you know, I think that's missing. And I also think goals that are because you 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 want to do it out of like love for yourself versus out of shoulds. And I should be a better person and I should be doing this thing. And um, that that's such a different relationship with yourself. So I think that's what's so great about coaching is that that perspective that comes um, to bring that in. So, so I think that's uh, unless that's changing in behavior science and maybe you're learning more about that in, in your work and your studies now, but that's certainly, I mean, we would talk about things like relapse prevention, knowing that most people do at some stage, you're going to have a time where you eat the Snickers bar, you know, <laughs> Halloween's going to happen. Right. But I feel like I'm being judged right now. Just kidding. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and as you say, it's so much of that self-talk, that yeah. self-judgment. Um, and I think that's where um, it's really important to know that you're working on goals for the right reasons. Because again, like you say, you can go into all these situations and set a new goal and feel like this is going to make my life better. 
but it's not necessarily depending the motivation behind that goal. So, yeah. So that's the, that's the behavior science side of things. So, so hopefully that's are, practical. Yeah. It, well, it is. And I think it's really helpful because there are people that are, get really down on themselves for not being able to make a change. And I kind of want to show people not no disrespect intended, but I kind of want to show people that you can still have all of that. You can know, all the ways that people make change mm -hmm. and still find yourself in places where you're like, oh shit, I have to make all the change. Like, mm -hmm. right. This, this moment of implementation that you mentioned to me, like this implementation in is something that I, I call embodiment in my practice, in my work. Right. Because mm -hmm. you know how smart I was when I burnt out that intelligence wasn't the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. That I, that wasn't the problem. I had all the information. I knew all the stress management techniques. I had learned about smart goals and writing things that I knew all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. But actually practicing things, actually mm -hmm. doing them, actually doing them enough so that your body recognizes them as a practice in your life mm -hmm. is a completely different thing than just knowing this stuff. Right. Right. And, and that body response, I think, is so important because it, that could take a while. Like yeah. some people for a while could feel that that new movements just don't feel good. So it is um, I mean, they, you know, there's different theories about when a habit becomes a habit. But I yeah. think that's partly about well, it depends what the behavior is, right. you know, and 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 how long that behavior then will start to relate to your body, how uncomfortable um, it is for how long. Mm, right. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So that's just a lot of information about the individual, but you worked on behavioral science on a public level. Mm -hmm. And you also talk about burnout shift on a wider scale than the mm -hmm. individual, right? Because we all know, we've all read the research, right? We all know that burnout is not an individual problem. So you have all these abilities to make these changes and have this influence and, and have some sort of control in your life. And yet still, we're all in these systems together that are not always supporting us. So where, where does that line come in? Where do we have to take responsibility and where can we say, if this system doesn't change, like you had to leave your job, mm -hmm. the system was not going to change fast enough for you to be able to stay there. Where do we draw that line for people? Right, right. I know there's uh, no perfect answer to this question, so I'm not no, expecting no. one. <laughs> no, I love the challenge. <laughs> And it's it's also funny you take it back to my to my burnout because I remember sitting down um, with the leaders in my school of medicine and them sort of saying what can we do for you, and I was like, if you solve these things for me, it doesn't help me because I work in a place with lots of other people who are stressed who are trying to do these things, and it's the system that has to change. You know, you just say for example giving me more money is not going to help this, this problem. So I think that was also when I realized that that system was a problem. And, and to be really honest, despite my desire to understand systems change and make systems change, I'm not back in the university trying to change those systems yet, right. because I think that's an extremely challenging place. It's a very male dominated environment um and there there are not the same 
pressures for, for change there um, as there are, for example, in companies. So I, I you know, I, yeah, that one is still a little beyond me. Um, but yeah, to answer the, the public health perspective, so kind of he, he, here's again a, a different example to help people to, to grab onto. So for example, say as a kid, you had met with a nutritionist and you decided I need more fruit and vegetables in my life, but then you go home and you have to convince your mom to buy more fruit and vegetables and you have to go to the school cafeteria and are there any fruit and vegetables available for it? And then when your mom tries to go out and go to the supermarket in society and buy fruit and vegetables, are they available and are they um, affordable? And then what um, policies do governments have that actually support healthy foods in schools, that actually support healthy foods in the environment? What laws are there, for example, is there a soda tax that, that, that makes it harder to have unhealthy food? So, of course, you think about that kid, if you just convince him as an individual, he needs more fruit and vegetables, there's so much else there's, that he's part of. So I kind of like that example because it really helps us Clear. think through. Yeah, it's it's sort of has easy boundaries in some ways, right? So then let's think about it from the burnout perspective. You are yourself. There are definitely things you can do to help yourself. Um, I think your mindset's so important. Having a growth and curious, open mindset, valuing yourself, trying to help yourself with some of your limiting self-beliefs. I think there's so much you can do to think about your own outlook. And that's where, again, coaches like yourself um, are, are just so important. We need perspective and we need permission. And I think that's what coaches help us do. But then, for example, as a mom, you're in a household, you're looking after your kids. Do you have an equal workload with your partner? Um, what are you responsible for? And how can you really be a role model to your kids, not a, not a martyr? You know, how can you still have your own interests and focus in that environment? And how can you share the tasks that are in the home? And then you go to the workplace. So if you're you're then a working mom, you know, what is it in the workplace that is impacting you? Um, and particularly, I, I do approach it from this gender perspective, because I think the reason why women and mums burn out is because they're working so hard and they're not getting the opportunities and they're not getting the rewards for that work. And to be honest, in many places in the workplace, they do not have a sense of belonging either. Um, so it's not just that they're, they're there and they've got a seat at the table. They're not hot. They're not heard. And they're and they're. Um, on the receiving end from so many microaggressions that remind them every day that they don't um, belong, whether it's that they're being told, oh, you're too emotional or you're too aggressive. Um, and in the workplace, I think there's so many situations that are really challenging for for women and there is the maternal wall so and 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 by the way women who are not mums are also affected by the maternal wall because sometimes employers think they're going to become mums and and so they still have this mentality of should we invest in them um if they're going to become a mum um and then once you are a mum the opportunities um are often taken away from you because people assume that you want uh 
to have more time with your kids. And so you don't want a promotion opportunity or a travel opportunity. And they sometimes even tell you that, oh, you know, you should be at home with the kids. So what is that expectation on you? Actually, no, maybe you do want to be in work and that work provides a sense of fulfillment that, that, that you know, you're not getting in your parenting role. And to be honest, that that is the case because like as a parent you're constantly adapting and 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 there's not really a great sense of achievement um <laughs> so certainly um with um um work you may find that that is a place where you can complete projects and you can have a sense of um control and achievement which you don't have necessarily as a parent and again back to that role model for my behavior change like what are the role models who is it that that's like you that's succeeding in this environment so if we don't have diverse leaders then it's very hard and, and certainly the leaders themselves are burning out. They're exhausted. They're not putting limits and boundaries on their time and their um, emails and, and when they show up. So again, we do need our leaders to role model healthy work habits and, and look after their health first. So that does come back to what we said, which is, you know, each individual also can be doing things and realizing that their individual behavior change is contributing to the whole. So then looking at society, I, I think we really had this um, example of this recently when paid leave was taken off the table um, at, and, and that's obviously at the government level, but there was a societal response to that when paid leave was taken out of the, the, the CARE Act. The way we got it back in was reminding people, everyone can be a caregiver at any time in their life. Uh, 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 white man's wife could get cancer and he might need to look after her at some stage. So this is a social norm about caring for each other and about having space in your life for, for caring for people you love. So that's the social norm. And again, I always say it too, it, it can be really hard for mums, for example, if they are taking a break and they go to the nail salon and then some other woman sort of says to him, well, aren't you lucky, you know, and it's just like, hold on, you know, or don't you have a great husband that can look after the kids for you? I mean, what are those norms that we have about mothering that, that you're lucky if you take a break and then the men are celebrated for braiding their daughter's hair? You know, those the social norms around this that just become exhausting, right? Because you feel like whatever you do, it's never good enough. And that really, that social expectation the research has shown can really affect um, burnout as well because there's internal expectations and that plays a role but these outside social expectations um, can really also lead to, to burnout because you just feel like whatever you do it's never enough and then as I started to mention it at the government level I mean we need policies around caregiving we need policies around for example Recently, um, I learned about the story of Dr. Lorna Breen, and she was a physician who burned out during COVID and she died by suicide. 
And so her family now have a foundation and they're trying to put legislation in there so that doctors, if they are having mental health issues, that their licenses are not going to be revoked for that. So there's legislation there, there's legislation like, um, you know, No More Silence Act, where basically we're saying, okay, whistleblowers and workplace harassment has to stop. There has to be legislation to help us do those things. So thinking about all those things, it does feel overwhelming. And I understand that. And when I would try and explain this to my students, I was so glad the day that I had this sort of epiphany to myself, which is even though these things sound like systems and they sound like things that we can't control, they're all people making decisions. Politicians are people making decisions. So the same principles that we have about behavior change for ourselves, trying to say, for example, have an open mindset is the same principles that we would have for trying to convince a politician. Like, what is it that's going to make that person feel that they should be accountable? How can you track what they're doing so that you can hold them accountable. All the same things, like what skills or what knowledge do you think a policymaker needs to be able to understand where you're coming from? So I think all these things are the same. And as I mentioned in the workplace, leaders do have to help themselves so that they can help others. Um, So I think the same framework of behavior change um, can be used to affect each level, Um, again, particularly in the home, for example. Um, It has to be motivating for your husband to to be doing the things. If you're constantly criticizing him when he does take some of the workload, then he's not going to keep doing it for you. And if he actually sees that you benefit and you take a break and that you come back feeling refreshed he's going to want more of that maybe so understand <laughs> yeah maybe there are some people that are so stuck in their own social ideals that they mm-hmm. got from their parents or whatever right. that that seeing anyone um taking a break quote unquote while they're mm-hmm. still quote unquote working is mm-hmm. seen as disrespect Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of the, those social yes. norms. There's a lot of different ideals that people carry, whether we're talking about cultural differences, racial differences, religious differences. There's a lot of ideas people mm-hmm. have about how things should look that can mm-hmm. be really tricky to manage. And I, mm-hmm. I what I hear you saying is that the behavioral changes that we need on an individual level, we can use those same concepts to um, hone in on people that can help make the systemic changes. So this mm-hmm. is a this is a micro to micro situation, right? So the micro the microorganism of one person and also the microorganism of one person then having an effect on the macro. But can we take the ideals of behavior change or the the the, the plans and the knowledge and the systems that exist in behavior change on a micro scale from an individual and apply them to companies? Like, does it work on a on a macro scale? Is this a clear question? It might not be. Yeah, so, I, I mean, the way, again, you get the macro scale is, is when you make policies that then make the decisions 
clearer and easier. So for example, if you have something like um, paternity leave as a default, everybody has to take it and then you opt out of that situation. So that's a behavior change technique that makes the easy choice the choice you want people to make so it's harder for them to do something to opt out of that situation and because then it becomes that norm everybody um, does it so there's no judgment attached so there's no penalty for doing this thing so so those are ways where you actually have a policy that um supports the behavior change and so that's how it becomes on a wider scale on a wider scale right but 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 the issue is um who makes the decision to say that that is that the the macro behavior that 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 you want to support that's beneficial right and that's beneficial so there's still in the change process there's still somebody making a decision but actually that's why you have to set up these like systems so that an individual decision maker isn't really responsible for getting it right all the time. So the same applies to um, hiring and promotions. So instead of one manager having control over another person's life about whether they get promoted or not, or whether they get hired, and that manager has their own biases that they're bringing to that situation, that is just sort of too much power in one person's hand. And like you say, the situation you said, well, what if that person just doesn't believe what you're saying, doesn't believe in having a break or whatever? That's, That's the situation you want to avoid where essentially you know it's it's a um automatic hiring uh, sorry an automatic promotion process for everyone you don't have to wait to be promoted at a, after a certain length of time everybody's file is getting reviewed for promotion that way women are also being reviewed from promotion they don't have to self-select into saying it's time for my promotion to be considered and it's not in the hands of that one measure there's a team of people and they have objective criteria that they're looking at so you're not having these exceptions to the rules because that's again where the human comes back in all these exceptions to the rules that humans want to put in um, start to then create their exceptions are based on on their beliefs and their bias and that's when it creeps back in and, and unfairness comes in so the same from the hiring perspective you want to have um, objective hiring rules and you want a team of people so that diverse perspectives come into the process so those are systems level things that you can set up to ensure more fairness and again that's that's a huge part of burnout um christine maslach's burnout um i mean it's 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 workload it's autonomy but it's injustice yeah and it's lack of reward um, so those are the frameworks at the larger society where you can set things up so that that there is more fairness in in the process, because, yeah, we we can't necessarily change people. Right. You can't necessarily change. Not every individual is going to right. change, like you said, in the way you want them to. But if th- that's how the systems and the, the policies um, can support you. Yeah. Um, But I also think, you know, one of the things we do have to think about are are some of the downsides in the workplace of making well-being um, something that you then put back on the individual or you even put it into the team context. So, for example, I know companies for 
for example, might be saying, okay, let's have a meditation app that our um, employees have access to, right? Because that's important for their health. And some other people set it up as, you know, if everybody um, gets on board with this fitness um, competition that we've got going, this is going to build team spirit and, and, and also then um, help us all. Now, that's, again, putting a lot of pressure on the individuals, and then you're making their participation in this additional well-being like burden part of the work environment. So we do have to be really careful about um, the, the, the practices. So definitely there are, um, you know, return on investment for, for stress management programs that, that exists. And again, return on investment for coaching, but it also has to be in the context of, um, you know, you being able to choose if this is your way to, to manage your stress and not just putting it down to, to the individual, um, and, and being careful about those team dynamics that can creep up around this and, and, and cause even more problems and, and shaming, to be honest, too. Yeah. Well, and lack of autonomy is one of the issues that Christina Moss right. mentions, right, in her work. Like not having the ability to choose is um, and to have autonomy over your decisions. Right. I mean, that's right. that that's uh, that makes right. burnout. And then worse. a values alignment as yeah. well. Because again, you you have to choose what it is that that is your way of managing your stress. And that might be just not being in the office around people at all. Right. 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 So one of the things that I think about the work that I'm doing and that other burnout coaches are doing, like, so when I'm thinking about the example that you gave about the kid that gets told that he should eat vegetables and he's like, cool, I'm on it. But like, there's not support for me to eat the vegetables. To me, I'm thinking that, you know, I'm talking to 10 of those kids right now. And there's a coach down the street is talking to 10 of those kids and a coach down the street is talking to 10 of those kids. And now we're talking to 30 kids. And now 30 kids are like, you guys, we need vegetables. And the par- two of the parents get together and they're like, oh my God, these kids need vegetables. Mm-hmm. And then they start, so, you know, so I, I do believe that there needs to be change from the top down. There needs to be some initiatives. There needs to be some legis- legislation. There needs to be some policies in place that encourage behavior that is more beneficial to us individually as humans. Mm -hmm. And there also needs to be on some level, a, a shouting from Mm -hmm. those of us who are already tired. And I get that that's an extra burden, but if we're not shouting about the fact that we're tired, nobody's going to hear us. And if there's enough of us saying, this is not it anymore, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, the person at the top has some motivation to make a change, right? So I think that there needs to be some things happening at the top levels, which I think are, are happening now. There's a lot of research going on in organizational leadership and organizational psychology and psychological safety and all of these things. And I also think that the more we stop participating in the system as it exists, and the more we're yelling about the fact that we need some fucking fruit, the more likely we are to encourage those systems to shift. Right. And, and, and I really do, do see that from multiple um, levels. So 
some of the work I did was all around like peer empowerment. So having a group of people that gets empowered to make change. Now, I totally understand when you're exhausted and you're the victim of the system, you don't necessarily want to be doing anything extra. Yeah. But actually that sense of fulfillment that you can get belonging to a group of people who have a purpose is actually part of your recovery. Mm. So yes, you have to be in the, the state of, of being able to, to, to contribute to that and that it doesn't drain your energy. But in these social situations where you're working as a group towards a positive goal that you care about can be so helpful for that, that process. One, because you're finding your tribe, um, but two, you, you do feel like you're, you're making a difference and that can, can be really helpful. And I'm just listening at the moment to this book about um, parenting change makers. And it's making me feel such a, a, an, in, in such an interesting place because obviously I'm a change maker and I can see my daughter has the industriousness of when she's making sandcastles. I'm like, this girl has so much energy and so much potential. And I kind of don't want to burden her with my desire to change the world but yet at the same time I don't want to inhibit her from wanting to be a change maker in the world you know I I had it since I was little um so again it's how can you do that in a way where you do it as a as a a group and not as an individual where you feel like you're just banging your head Mm because because a lot of change makers a lot of advocates a lot of non-profit leaders burn out um so again, doing it in a collaborative way and really understanding the, the limits that you're not supposed to give it your all to the point you're burned out um, can be really helpful. And then thinking about partnerships when you're doing that, because again, you know, a group of mums can do so much, for example, to get the vegetables, but you do have to work with other groups who have voices in other places. Um, so I think there's a lot that we can really do about social empowerment. And one of the things I think about in the workplace are these ideas called learning collaboratives. And that basically comes a lot from healthcare environments where sometimes you're more encouraged to um, actually monitor um, whether you're meeting certain quality improvement goals. And the best way, again, to do that is to do it as a group because the group think and the group knowledge is stronger than your own individual. And so basically you work as a group in this learning collaborative, you support each other, you problem solve together, you set goals together, but also then like one group goes out and says, we're going to try this in our workplace and we're going to see what happens. And everybody else says, yeah, we're not ready for that. Go for it. But they support you to do it. And you do your little experiment to see, does that work in our workplace? And then you bring it back. You'll look at it and say, how did it work? What made it work? And then you say, can we adopt that in ours? Uh, do we have the same similar environments in our workplace that we could make those changes? So I do really see it as being this um, openness to experimentation. Because again, I, I think there isn't just one way. There's In public health too, there's never that silver bullet. There isn't just one way to change or there's not one answer. So going into it already with the experimentation mindset, with being able to build upon other people's ideas, take them, change them a bit for your environment, 
um, but always thinking about the, is it working? Really knowing, what did it have impact? And it's okay if it doesn't have impact because it just might have been that situation. doesn't mean you wouldn't then say, well, let me try it in mind. I think if we did it this way, made this little change, it might work. Um, so I, I really think the bottom up, yes, can come from um, shouting uh, about it, but also, um, you know, the collaborating awareness, about it. yeah collaborating about it because i agree awareness is 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 always the first step in, in all these things and like we say awareness of our burnout in our body it, it's the first step but it's not enough i can be aware i'm burned out in my body but i gotta do something i gotta know what to do and i gotta keep trying different things because it might not work or the situation is different so I, I, I really think it is that it's that um, collaboration and, and problem solving approach to things um, and just keeping on trying, because I do think little things will, will change. And, and I mean, yeah. there is that sort of nudge concept as well, that it that that it that it can have ripple effects. Um, so I think thinking about it as not having to change too much. Um, yeah. but change make make start a ripple um yeah. and be a, be content with a ripple right because i'm yeah. like i want a freaking tsunami here right <laughs> i want everything to change now everywhere or right yeah and that's not gonna that's not gonna that's gonna burn me out well that's gonna burn us out and we never you never really know what the side effects will be of any change Right. before it's actually implemented. Mm -hmm. So there might be some ideas that are being thrown around now that everybody's like, well, why isn't everybody do that? It would be perfect. And it might be really good for some things and it mm -hmm. might lead to some other problems that we just can't see just quite yet. So mm -hmm. doing it in a ripple way makes it a gentler process and leaves time and space available for the adjustments that will inevitably need to happen for different people, different companies, different situations, for side effects, for anything else that comes up. So I like, I, I'm a big, 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 big believer in small steps to affect mm -hmm. change. So I like this idea. I can see the ripple mm -hmm. as it goes. So I really like that idea. And, and I think that certainly comes from, you know, being in the more medical environment first, do no harm. But again, I, I could imagine a company thinking, oh, we'll give everyone access to a meditation app that's not going to harm anyone right and and yeah. and and just not realizing um and so again i i think that's so much where when i think about empathy it 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 has to come from hearing somebody else's point of view so hearing the stories right you, you have to be able to put yourself somehow in their shoes in their situation because because we keep hearing this empathic leadership and and it's like how can somebody whose life situation it's has been different. so different how can they they understand where you're coming from so again i think that comes back to well having more people in leadership positions with different life experience and you know you you know that it, it the empathy will come because, and again, doing things in teams, like empathy will come because someone on that team gets where that person is and where they've come from. Um, so, yeah, I think that's um, partly how it, it, it happens yeah. um, is, is when you just have more voices from more different experiences 
because um, then they can sort of put up the voice and say, well, what if that, per- you know, what if somebody feels really pressured yeah. um, to look after their own health in this car map? And actually they think you're the problem. <laughs> and I have had that when I've talked yeah, to many female course. colleagues in academia. They're like, don't give me another self-care lecture or don't tell me to do this. It's the system that's the problem. Right. And at the same time, you're participating in the system and the system is not going to change overnight. So we've got to do something. There's this sort of like constant back and forth in this, but we are coming to the the very top of the hour. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of pull back on things that I think were really important. One of them is that change has got to happen on an individual and a systemic level. Mm -hmm. That's important. I think collaboration remembering that on all different levels is very important. I think that there's this sort of thread that's gone through this whole podcast that you mentioned right in the very beginning that sort of went all the way through that is related to asking for help that comes Mm -hmm. with collaboration, but that also comes in an individual sense of, of asking people to be part of what's important to you. And, you know, Harvard business business review book on resilience tells us that asking for help is literally the only behavior that they've correlated with resilience. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of characteristics that they've cor- correlated with resilience, but the only behavior is asking for help. So I think that that's a that's an important thread that goes through all of this. Is there something else that you would add to that to to sort of wrap us up and send people off feeling stronger than they did an hour ago? <laughs> and actually, I think it does relate back to my first story, too. Mm-hmm. In the letter I wrote my kids, I said, yeah. ask for help. Yeah. And, and thinking I, I couldn't ask for help. And then it goes back to what we said about behavior change. You have to do the thing to see whether it, you can do it. Yeah. So, so I would agree. Asking, asking for help is the number one thing. And, and I saw it as weakness and so independent and and so never wanting to burden someone else but then when I realized how much I love when people ask me for help and I love helping other people if you can think about that in your head and say hey somebody may be really really happy to help me and maybe I'll feel I'll be doing something in their life to make them feel better about themselves too, because they're, they feel like, great, I, I can help, you know, Jacqueline, the independent <laughs> pain in the butt supermom, right? You know, and also I think we have to assume that other people could be better at setting boundaries than we are. I think partly one of the reasons where I'm afraid to ask for help is because I'm very bad at saying no. And I don't want to burden other people with that burden. I don't want them to say yes to me. And I've added to their burden somehow. Like, I, I don't know what their situation is. They may have the bandwidth to help me. And it may be, um, you know, really enjoyable and beneficial for them to do that. And they may not. And they possibly have the skills to tell me that and know how to set boundaries. So again, I think those two things are so tied, asking for help, but also having your own boundaries around when you um, say yes. And I think that's so, so important because it does 
shift where you sit in the world. Like if you sit in the world having boundaries and assuming that other people also can develop or have developed boundaries, I, to me, that just changes how you approach things, right? You don't have this mindset that everyone is as exhausted and run down as you are. Um, yeah. Yeah. I had shitty boundaries for a long time and now they're, <laughs> now they're excellent. But I do tell people that a lot. Please trust that I'll tell you if I can't or, or I won't offer if it's not possible for me, or if I don't want to, mm -hmm. and not even just if it's not possible to me, if I don't want to, mm -hmm. I'm not going to offer. So if I'm offering, that means that I have the time and willingness and energy to do it because I, I am not the person anymore who will offer if that is not the case. But I have to remind people of that because we are so accustomed to thinking that we're going to be a burden or that we can't rely on anybody else or that, you know, and I just let people know, listen, you don't have to hold this boundary for me. When people, when I have coaching clients that are like, oh, the, the time, I don't want to waste your time. I say, you don't have to work, take care of my time. Mm -hmm. If you need to finish the call because you have something scheduled, that's fine. But it is not your job to, to take care of my time. That's my job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's hard for people. And it was a hard lesson. It's a hard learned lesson for me. And I'm, I mean, they're excellent now and I still mess up. Let's be honest. <laughs> But I agree with how important they are. And as soon as I create some better boundaries around how many classes I take a semester, I will finish writing the book on boundaries that I think everybody needs to have. <laughs> I have to create and, some boundaries to write my book on boundaries. Right. And, and again, it, it is a difficult process because yeah. I, I know I've been trying to set some new boundaries and feel like in some ways I'm, I'm being penalized if somebody else doesn't like those new boundaries. Yeah. Um, so, so it is a very complicated it one, is. but again, it, it's the same thing. Keep experimenting, keep mm -hmm. trying, exactly. set new ones. Um, and, and I think that's so much part of it. It's that growth mindset to be able to say, you know, I'm not going to get it right. And yeah. uh, I just got to keep trying things till I find something that does feel better and not, not giving up because you, you will make progress. Um, and that to me is absolutely true. As I say, I, I have definitely made mounds of progress and I know I've still got long way to go, but yeah progress is definitely possible. I think that's the perfect place to wrap up. Dr. Jacqueline, thank you so much for your willingness to be here, your willingness to share that story, even though I know it was not easy and for sharing the deep and immense knowledge that you have with all of us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right, fried fans, it's wrapping up another week of fried the burnout podcast as per usual should you need a community or some collaboration or some support in your world please do not hesitate to join our facebook group we are almost 500 people strong and we want you in there with us because i do believe that the more of us are in there and the more work we're doing together we can hashtag end burnout culture so i'll see you in there until next time Thank you.